Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This is Barry Ritholtz, and this week I am thrilled to have a friend as a guest. His name is Laxman Athushan. He is the head of the Economic Cycle Research Institute, better known as ECRI. They're the group that helps to date recessions all around the world, as well as running their own analytics shop. Uh, up until recently, they've had a literally flawless track record. Not a lot of people in economics can say that. Uh, at some point over the past few years, they thought we were at risk of an imminent recession. And what ended up happening is QE, either three or four, came along, and that pretty much avoided what they thought was the next recession. Uh, there was a big New York Times piece about them a few years ago, which <laughs> traditionally is the kiss of death. To quote our guest from a month ago, Paul Krugman, he who the gods wish to destroy, they first put on the cover of Business Week. So perhaps a a deep New York Times uh, profile is roughly the the equivalent of that. I find him to be a really interesting guy. I, I've known him for quite a number of years. Our offices used to be literally a block away from each other. We would go to lunch pretty regularly and chat about what was going on during the great financial crisis, what we both thought should happen, why what the government was doing was either good or bad or might help or might not help. And just a really, really interesting guy, very data-driven, sticks to his guns. Uh, this is somewhat of an unusual period in time. And I think that the reason they saw a recession coming and it didn't happen was I don't believe their model fully incorporates the impact of what QE was actually doing. It was relatively unprecedented at the time. It's hard to build that into a model. You know, invaders come from Mars. What does that do to your your holiday spending forecast? And the answer is it throws it off a bit. That's, that's their view of uh, quantitative easing and what it did to the model. But generally speaking, they're really insightful. Their leading economic index is excellent. It's done a really good job about describing when the economy is actually getting better or worse. doesn't have to be a full-blown recession or a full-blown robust uh, expansion. They just have a, a, a nice set of metrics. And I find him to be a really interesting guy who a lot of the subject matter can get really wonky, can get really deep. But- 
he does a lovely job explaining in plain English all the things that are going on in the economy, what we need to be aware of, what the relationship for you traders out there, what the relationship between the economy and the market is. It's really not what everybody thinks it is. It's a much shorter leading indicator, and very often by the time a recession is over, uh, the, the market has already moved forward and is positive. It's, it's quite fascinating uh, to look at that relationship and how different it is from lots of our expectations. I really enjoy his, his discussions on what's been going around globally. They have a really huge database. They provide a lot of information to corporate America, to multinational companies, and to governments around the world. They're really a key player in econometric data. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Lakshman Athashan. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm pleased to bring a friend of mine on the show. You probably, if you follow economic data, have heard of him and his company, uh, or you might have seen him in somewhere in the financial circuit. Um, he's really a fascinating guy and does some fascinating work, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Welcome to the show, Laxman Achuthan of the Economic Cycle Research Institute, better known as ECRI. You got it. What well, well said, well pronounced. Uh, it, I know it's a mouthful. Listen, uh, I've spent you, my whole yeah, childhood yeah. having people Rithalts, Rithalts, Rithalts. So I always try and get people's names uh, yeah. more or less close. There anyway. you go. There you go. Well, it's well. You know, thanks a lot for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So I think the the first place that a member of the public might have become familiar with you. Mm-hmm was this fantastic profile that the New York Times did of you um, about two years ago. Is that about right? Yep. 2012, 2011, something like that? Somewhere in there, about a couple of years, 2011 and probably. they yeah. couldn't have been more complimentary. They couldn't have been nicer. And some people call that the kiss of death. Yeah. As soon as they do that, <laughs> you're marked. Uh, the famous Paul Krugman quote right. from Business Week is, whom... He whom the gods seek to destroy, they first put on the cover of Business Week. Sure. So this is a, a version of that. Sure. Um, but what the Times mentioned that was so fascinating is, unlike the traditional economists out there, mm-hmm. the way your firm looks at the economy anticipates mm-hmm. recessions, re- anticipates recoveries. Not only is it a very different approach, it has a vastly superior track record. And uh, essentially, your study is of the business cycle, hence the name economic uh, cycle. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about what your firm does. That's We study recessions mm-hmm. and recoveries. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's uh, what I've done for all of my professional career. I started in, the 19, in 1990. Uh, mm-hmm. With the nineteen ninety, the old nineteen ninety ninety one recession, right? Um, a fairly yeah, modest, mild, pretty right? Mild, fairly pretty shallow mild recession. recession. Yeah, um, people were a little freaked out back then. Remember, Japan was going to take over the world, right? And, all that. and th- <laughs> they bought thirty Rockefeller Center. They bought yeah. 
And that was it. They were going to buy the United States and move it back to Tokyo. Yeah, Bill Clinton won the uh, that presidential election with uh, "It's the Economy, Stupid." That right, was, of course. Even, even though the recovery was starting, had already begun before already the election. Begun. Right? It had already begun. It was so anemic. That's where that double dip recession talk Fear, first came, right. and all of that. And um, that's that's where I kind of. Uh, uh, broke my teeth on uh, uh, looking at recessions and recoveries with Jeffrey Moore up at Columbia University. So let's talk for a moment about Jeffrey Moore, because I think most people know the name yeah. for a different Jeffrey oh, Moore, sure. the guy who wrote the book Crossing the, the Chasm. The this guy. is not that- This is Jeffrey H. H. Moore. Moore. Jeffrey so, Hoyt Moore. <laughs> so I, I love some of the stuff about, about his bio. First, right. he essentially is the guy who- I don't know if you want to use the word discover or invented, invented le- the idea of leading economic indicators. Right, right. Uh, the Wall Street Journal called him uh, the father of leading indicators. And to put it in perspective, Dr. Moore uh, was the protege of Wesley Mitchell uh, and Arthur Burns, earlier business cycle researchers. Wesley Mitchell- Burns eventually became Fed chairman. Became Fed chairman under Nixon in the Nixon administration. Now, um, but earlier, Wesley Mitchell- uh, in the early part of the last century, uh, mm-hmm. in the 20s, helped form the National Bureau of Economic Research. And this is where- Also known as the NBER, as the which NBER, is the organization the, that currently has a committee that officially- Dates. Dates the beginning and end of recessions, but it always wasn't always a committee, was it? No, no. It was Dr. Moore. He he used to ha- say he'd, he'd quip that he would uh, have lunch with himself, or right. have a meeting with himself over lunch and, uh-huh. and decide the dates. And so then, he's literally the guy who- Prior to the current incarnation of the NBER, which say, decided of, officially, officially, he's the guy who said, This is a recession. It began here and it ended there. Correct. Like, that's a lot of power in one Yeah, the hands. shaded areas on your charts. When did they start and end? Dr. Moore picked them all until 78. <laughs> that's that's a lot of them, right? So, that's crazy. So, so Mitchell figured out what was a business cycle, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a huge thing to figure out. Huge insight, huge, huge recognition. insight. He started to do work. Um, when Moore was uh, working under him on, on leading indicators of revivals, because remember there were a lot of depressions back sure. then. Sure. And Moore, after um, World War II, took up that work again and refined it to leading indicators of revival and recession. That's your first set of leading indicators. He worked with a man named Julius Shiskin at the Commerce Department to invent the idea, the statistics for a composite index. They put the leading indicators and the composite index together, those two uh, right. ideas, and there's your original index of leading economic indicators, which they then gave to the Commerce Department. Uh, fascinating. We're talking <laughs> with Lakshman Achuthan of ECRI about basically the history of yeah. dating recessions. Uh, both of those, so from 1949, for the post-war period, uh-huh. up until 1978, mm-hmm. It's it's Doctor Moore. After that, they put they it form in a committee. He retires. Committee. He retires, and he's head of the committee, the Business Cycle Dating Committee. So, how do you start working with Doctor Moore? Uh, he re- when he retires from the National Bureau, uh, uh, where he was director, he starts forecasting, <laughs> and he right. and he creates uh, a research firm called the Center for International Business Cycle Research, uh, which uh, originally was at Rutgers, and it moved very quickly over to. Uh, Columbia Business School, right. uh, where Mitchell and Burns had also taught. And that's where it was housed from the early 80s through the mid-90s. And I began working with Dr. Moore in uh, 1990 uh, right there. Let's let's make this really yep. simple. Let's sure. break this down. 
What exactly is a recession? You know, a recession is really at the heart of how a market economy works, where it alternates between upswings and downswings in growth. And some of those downswings uh, turn into recessions. You actually contract. And in other words, when the economy is no longer growing and no longer flat, it's actually getting smaller. It's actually shrinking. So you might you might have the overall economy expand 3%, and then it'll slow to 2% or 1% and hopefully reaccelerate. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes, you know, in the, in the recessions, it goes negative. Now, I've heard you give a very specific, I don't want to call it technical definition, mm-hmm. but really your, your textbook definition. Sure. Describe what that is. Well, this is going back two generations. Equity is the third generation of this mm-hmm. research, going back to Wesley Mitchell. Uh, who helped define what a recession is. It's a pronounced, pervasive, and persistent decline mm-hmm. in output, employment, income, and sales. So uh, when so- you say pronounced, persistent, and pervasive, pronounced means it's significant. It's noticeable. <laughs> persistent is it lasts for a while. It has to last uh, really uh, about two quarters at least. And pervasive is it's in most, if not all, corners of the economy. Right. It can't just be a, a, something hitting one spot of the economy. It's going to spread uh, across and kind of infect. So, you, so cycles, you can have a vicious cycle, which mm-hmm. is a recession. It, it snowballs. Uh, right. You know, because if let's say um, production goes down, employment goes down, income goes down, you can't buy that much. Sales go down, and that kicks production down. So Keen's that's paradox of thrift. You and get this. My yeah. saving is otherwise would be your income. So if I stop spending, you got it. Suddenly we have, and once everybody puts their wallets away, we get a, a you get a this chill. vicious the vicious cycle. Now that can also turn virtuous, and at times that you don't expect, uh, like in two thousand and nine, uh, where it kind of runs its course. Right. To the downside. The fever breaks. And the fever breaks. You have some pent-up demand, uh, mm-hmm. and you can actually see it, the, the vicious cycle turn virtuous, where an unexpected kind of uh, sales uh, leads to catches production short, and then you mm-hmm. have to gear up and hire and incomes, and then suddenly you can- things start working suddenly, out. suddenly you have a virtuous cycle. So the business cycle in a free market, this is in every free market. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you've seen, uh, formally planned economies like India or China uh, loosen up and become more free market oriented. You're seeing those cycles present themselves mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in, a, in, in a more traditional way, as we've seen in the developed world. And we're certainly seeing that in China these yeah. days. The, their formerly torrid double-digit growth rate is now 5 or 6%, which would be great in the United States. But their economy is what a half, a third of our economy. It's really right. much smaller on an absolute basis. Yeah, you'll have you'll have the you'll have these economies, especially in the post World War II period, uh, Western Europe, Japan, uh, where they get very high trend growth because they're rebuilding and all mm-hmm. of these things, and so they'll still have cycles in growth. Uh, but it'll be around a higher trend. What we're seeing now, which is uh, qu- quite interesting, from the cyclical vantage point from that cyclical framework is that the developed economies, their trend growth is so low that the cycle, which is endogenous, it's part of how a free market works, mm-hmm. uh, each downturn, you have an easier chance to go negative. So let's that brings up a really fascinating point. What is it that actually causes a recession? And I want to put that into a little context. I, I've been hearing people for the past, I don't know, three years, four years say, Hey, we're at stall speed, mm-hmm. like as if there's an airplane and if the yeah. engine slows down a little more, you lose less than you crash. 
Uh, we're at stall speed. We're at risk of recession. Mm-hmm. How come some slowdowns never really turn to recession and other slowdowns, that's a, uh, there's yeah. some sort of external shock sure. that some economies weather and others, it, it's like a drunk Great. that caused them to tip over. Great point. And I think a... It's really the reason we exist. I mean, and and I want to contrast it a bit with more mainstream economics. But mm-hmm. but first, let me answer your your question directly. A key finding of generations of work. I'm talking decades of work. Mm-hmm. We're the third generation now. Uh, is that recession is not simply caused by an external shock, you know, like an oil shock or right. the Fed did something or whatever. Sometimes those things happen and there's no, and there's negative, no recession. Even so, though some of these are really big external shocks. Sure, like Katrina. Right. Katrina could huge, have been, huge. right, but no recession. Right. Okay. So, so, so why was that? Because the recession, our research shows, and this is, I'm looking over a lot of time, many say decades. a century, almost a century in some right. cases, and many different economies around the world. And what we find is the free market has this endogenous cyclicality to it, where it wants right. to accelerate and decelerates. Now, that's going on. That's the nature of a free market at its very essence. Now, shocks are always happening. If a shock occurs when there's a cycle downturn, Mm-hmm. Uh, the vulnerability is is there when when we when we have a this the leading indicators of the indicators of the cycle turning down mm-hmm. we like to we describe it as a window of vulnerability opening and at that time if there's a shock very easy for it to be recessionary more, more vulnerable at that point, more vulnerable it's like you have your compromised immune system and if there's a shock boom you're in trouble on the other hand if you're in an upswing and you have a shock for example uh, pearl harbor Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a big upswing going on in the indicators, right. and it's a pretty massive shock. I'll say. Uh, but the 9-11 of its day We is just, really the even best. in some ways, it's bigger, right? Right. In, in some ways. And, 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 uh, but definitely the 9-11 of its day, and, and boom, economy cruises right through it. And people tend to associate recessions with the nearby shock. 9-11 is a great example. That occurred half a year after the recession was underway. The, re- it was, it was, the recession was a month or two away from ending. It, yeah, it was no, actually you, much closer to the end than but, the uh, But everybody, you know, immediately their muscle memory brings you to 9-11 and that recession. I, and constantly, just like, I constantly am saying to people, how can 9-11 in September have caused a recession that began the previous March? Correct, correct. And the same thing with Lehman. Uh, that's eight months after the recession began. For example, that's right. So that's, <laughs> let, let's talk about that September two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and the recession was dated December two thousand and seven. Two thousand seven. So by the time Lehman and then AIG and everything else came along, we were already you're very vulnerable, right? You're at and a place where you're that's eight nine months into a recession. So so the time. way so from our again from our fairly unique perspective, right? And not not a lot of people talk from a from a cycle perspective, but from that perspective, we're in this cyclical downturn already, and then you have a huge financial shock, and it makes a bad recession the great recession. Today, I've been speaking with Lakshman Athushan and and discussing uh, various ways at looking at business cycles and Mm -hmm. recessions, and obviously, Bloomberg being a financial channel, one of the questions that everyone wants to know, what's the relationship between the stock market and the economy, and, and how do recessions fit into that cycle? Sure. Well, I mean, stocks are key key, key metrics in a free market economy, right? It's all about uh, what, what these equities are worth in some sense and, mm-hmm. and these market prices. So market prices are uh, an area you can go to uh, to see 
where you are in the cycle. Uh, sometimes they're coincident, sometimes they're leading. The stock prices are a short leading indicator of the economy. They're a part of the original indicators that Moore uh, developed back in the late 50s. And um, as I said, they, they're, they're a short leading indicator. They're, now let me, let me stop you there because I've heard repeated endlessly. Yep. Yeah. Oh, the stock market gives you a year's warning before mm-hmm, a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're implying that's not true. No, 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 it's not. It's uh, a short leader is maybe five, six months uh, average lead, and then hidden inside the word average is some variability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there may have been a case here and there where it had a long lead, but I wouldn't classify it as a long leader, something that led by three or four quarters. It's it's more likely to be one or two quarters. Uh, and uh, it might be a little bit longer lead at the peak and a little shorter lead at the trough. But on its own, it's a very imperfect uh, indicator. Mm-hmm. It's not a holy grail. Neither is even the leading index. Right. Uh, but one of the things you do when you put leading indicators from different areas, different sources together into a leading index, you get some confirmation. And so uh, the stock prices are one piece of the puzzle in a set of short leading indicators that were created half a century ago. What, so, what are some of the other short leading indicators? Oh, you could you could look at uh, things from the labor market, things from capital investment, things from interest rates. Uh, uh, some some sensitive commodity uh, prices, um, some survey data, which wasn't available half a century mm-hmm. ago. So these are different types of short leading indicators. Uh, some come from government, some come from market prices, some come from private surveys. This is, you're diversifying your risk among mm-hmm. your indicators sure. here. Um, but the, the, the thing that people should know is any one of these indicators is highly fallible. Mm-hmm. Uh, even together, it's not a holy grail. But uh, it's certainly better than relying on any single input. Absolutely. We, we, I can't tell you how many times I've responded to people who are saying, because of this factor, here's what's, yeah. hey, listen, the market's much more complex than that. The economy can't be depicted in in a single variable. You need a multiple, a multiple variant in order to come up with any sort of not at all. Right. Depiction. And so, and so um, we've been doing a lot of work in a half a century, right? So <laughs> in, in that time, we've come up with long leading indicators, leading indicators of different sectors of the economy, of employment, of inflation. And this larger array of leading indicators is what we actually use, not any one leading uh, index. And also what's happened is that um, – the LEI, uh, of course, has been privatized. It's been taken out of mm-hmm. uh, the public sector. And, you know, most people are more comfortable, most economists are much more comfortable with econometric models mm-hmm. and estimations and extrapolations. Right. And a lot of that has actually started to uh, appear inside the LEI numbers that you're getting. So, Inside some of those components are extrapolated econometric forecasts, which is really Not kind good. of antithetical to the whole idea. Less, uh, less than <laughs> optimal, in other words, is when you're fitting idea, it. You're trying to fit the thing, and then it's 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 no different. See what we do. This should have a model within a model. The idea is to use the data to well uh, as inputs into your model, so you get a clean output. Yeah, the what we do is we don't use models. So a, a pure cyclical uh, framework won't even use. Uh, an econometric type model anywhere in its presentation. You're monitoring specific, very, very limited cyclical indicators. And here, what's happening is, oh, this component isn't ready, so let me 
estimate it. Right. And that is a totally another, that's a different ball game. That's what you see every day when someone does an estimate off of a model. And and most of those estimates are pretty, uh, you know, you get what pretty mediocre. Yeah. Garbage in, garbage out. There you go. You said it. (laughs) I'm being polite. That's the G-rated version. All right. All right. So we have a minute left in this segment. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about policy and politics. But uh, one of the things that we think of when we think about the market and the economy is, I I have 2,000 sticks out in my head. And maybe it's a, a bad example because of the bubble and the tech bust. But I remember- earnings misses starting long before the recession began. And perhaps that's how the market picks this up long before the recession is officially. Yeah, I think the market, the market uh, left to its own devices is, is, a, is a, a, you know, a risk management tool. Um, but, and, and here's just give you the statistics. In, 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 in three, three out of the last 15 recessions, you saw uh, the market go up even when there was a recession. It's a couple times you've seen, it, you've seen it disconnect. And the one that's very interesting is the Roaring Twenties, where it disconnected completely, but it ended badly. This week, I'm sitting with Laxman Achuthan of ECRI, Economic Cycle Research, and we've been talking about the relationship between the stock market and the economy. I want to bring something up that's policy-related mm-hmm. that I recall you writing, I don't remember if it was 07 or 08, but you had written a piece mm-hmm. and published it somewhere where mm-hmm. you essentially said, hey, there's a, a recession coming, mm-hmm. but there's also a last chance mm-hmm. to avoid this recession. And if Congress acts, mm-hmm. you could miss this recession. Mm-hmm. Does yeah, that ring this, a bell? It, it absolutely does. It was There was a brief window of opportunity in 2007 uh, where uh, there was literally – no inventory on the shelves. It was just a little bit of a weirdness in the inventory cycle. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, some cash in consumers' pockets uh, would have spurred a temporary, I'm not saying it would have solved anything long-term, but a temporary restocking and staved off the recession that began in December of 2007. But thanks to the way that you know DC works, the Bush, Pelosi, Bernanke fiscal stimulus that they did actually vote through, which was what, like one hundred and fifty billion, right? What I mean, that, that was were those the three hundred dollar checks? Or? These are checks in the mail, right? But they right. didn't they didn't arrive until uh, two thousand eight and towards the recession summer and, and and the summer and and the recession was already underway. So it it I think in principle, if there's these little tactical moments, you might be able to kind of throw a monkey wrench inside of that vicious cycle just for a second. You're not going to get rid of it, but you could maybe stave it off so that you're ready for or a little bit better prepared instead of what we had here, which was a, a basically a debacle. Right. And, and uh, I don't, you know, it's hard to, you know, I guess it could have been worse, but. Um, sure. The, 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 but it's the, interesting. The earth could have split in half. But it's and, interesting. Uh, it is kind of interesting. 150 billion back in that, back then. It's an adorable number, isn't it? But it's almost that, cute. It's but not, that it's was quaint. back in the day when it was a really big number and it right. sank like a stone. Nobody right. even remembers right. it. And, and, you, and you see, you know, these numbers, they get so large that, you don't know what they mean, but they, you know, it sounds like it could have plugged a hole somewhere in a budget. <laughs> we, we had we had Jim Chanos on a few weeks ago, and he, we were discussing his histories. Yep. Short salary identifies mm-hmm. fraud. Mm-hmm. The first company he had identified cooking the books and, and mm-hmm. very famously shorted was Baldwin, which was a piano manufacturer that okay. became an insurance company. And mm. when they went belly up, and this is the late 80s, early 90s, 
Um, it was the biggest bankruptcy in history, and it was nine billion dollars. And there I'm like, oh, that's adorable. That's nine adorable. billion dollars. That's that's nothing. But 150 billion dollars in yeah, 07, 08 was was still real money. And remember, you know, Washington is famous for gridlock, but here you had again Bush. And a, Pelosi, Pelosi, a Democrat, and uh, Bernanke, a, uh, a, a who Republican was, who's a, a fa- effectively a bipartisan, and they guy. all went at this fiscal thing to get it done. I think that they uh, saw some writing on the wall, but even with that kind of consensus, it's just too slow. So the idea that. I think in theory Congress might be able to do something, but in practice it's almost impossible to get ahead of the cycle that uh, especially way. these days where yeah. it's all yeah. so so what you're effectively saying much different than than what I've been reading from some of the more extreme elements of the political spectrum is that you can engage in a form of stimulus a la John mm-hmm. Maynard Keynes and actually have a net impact on the economy. I think in very unique circumstances that may be able to happen. But I would actually, at so the same you, wait, time- let yeah. me, Let's let's stop yeah. right there. Yeah. So let's look at two recent policy actions sure. that have, uh, and we're going to keep it bipartisan, sure. but there's a lot of politics behind both of this. Mm-hmm. One was the stimulus in 2009, right. and the second was the sequester- Mm-hmm. In 2013, each of those were big chunks of money. Mm-hmm. What theoretically do those two things do for the economy? The stimulus. You really want to know? <laughs> I I think so. Sure. So keep in mind the stimulus really kind of a half-assed. Stimulus. But when does that the was, stimulus hit? Well, that's what I was going to say. It's it's really kind of half arsed because Remember, some of were, it is unemployment extension and some of it is temporary right. tax cut, and so, not a lot of it was what we think of like. Eisenhower and the interstate highway system was really a big bad stimulus sure, that sure. worked wonders. Sure. Now, or so goes the thesis. Now, um, okay, so you have a cycle, mm-hmm. and the cycle doesn't care right. about uh, the politics. Right. It's happening. It's this endogenous cycle in a free market where we're going to have an ebb and flow in our activity. And we had a nasty downturn. Right. Uh, and by um, the spring, of 2009, the recession's still going on uh, in Davos in April at, at that time. Not in Davos, it was a G20 meeting in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were um, talking about depression in right. April, uh, but the leading indicators had all turned up sharply so that we were forecasting an end to recession by the middle of 2009. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the stimulus was still kind of cooking its, its way, way through. Out. Yeah. So, but th- so in other words, I'm saying the recession uh, was already was ending. See, these things end, right? So We've that had, recession was already, that stimulus was already too late well, in to make much of an impact. These are the facts. In 222 years, we've had 47 recessions. The Fed's been around for maybe half of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, they've been around when there have been a lot of recessions. So they haven't been able to get rid of them. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> maybe they contributed to some. I don't know. You know, we could argue that too. I don't think that's uh, much of an argument. Okay. So, so the point is, is like, you know, this is the condition of the environment we're in, that it right. has this cycle going up and down. And so if things get really bad, I am a very empathetic, sympathetic person. I am not saying everybody should just be like in trouble Let if there's a reception. Right. You know, I'm not going there. Liquidate banks. And I understand. I understand everybody from both sides of the policy spectrum. They're trying to figure out how to make things better, and they have suggestions. But the but the idea that you can go so far as to get rid of the business cycle is one that has been promoted. 
uh, many times, and it's failed many times. Time and time again. Yeah, Irving Fisher in 29, the permanently permanent plateau. plateau. <laughs> We're speaking with Lakshman Achuthan of the Economic Cycle Research Institute about recessions and, and the impact of policies. So uh, people have been calling, at least they used to before the collapse, the the Greenspan era mm-hmm. as the great moderation. Sure. We seem to have less recessions, less frequently. They were shallower. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you look at that, and how, yeah, what does that mean going I, forward? I think it's very interesting. This is at the core of uh, something that's been concerning us since 2008. And uh, we, we call it the yo-yo years. We, we've entered our yo-yo years, which is a period of uh, weaker growth and more frequent recessions. And the Greenspan years are related to that. In a way, they masked it. Trend growth in the United States no matter how you slice it, has been getting weaker and weaker since the mid-70s. The pace of each recovery since the 70s has been getting weaker and weaker. It's stair-stepping down. Now, in the in the 90s, which, was, which had relatively low trend growth compared mm-hmm. to earlier decades, as long as it's an extended, a long business cycle, you don't ma- you don't mind that much. And, and, and here, the volatility of the cycle comes in. So we have a relatively moderate cycle, not mm-hmm. big swings, gentle swings, but our altitude is low. So it feels okay. And in fact, that was a very impressive, on many statistical counts, uh, expansion. The problem is if the volatility returns and your at altitude- that level. At that low level, you're in big trouble. Right. And so let's take a look at Europe or the UK. After the Great Recession, uh, they all uh, recovered uh, for a little bit, and then they went back into recession. Right. And then they recovered again. And now they're all actually turning down a little bit. So they're seeing more frequent recessions in Europe right now mm-hmm. already. It's not even a forecast anymore that this it's is actually occurring. happening today. Look at Japan. In in, in 21 in years. For how long? Well, in 21 years, they've had six recessions. They've had abenomics. They've almost shot everything they can shoot at, at the economy. The right. structural stuff is a little- the, their, is their version of QE is what? Three times, six times hours, it's I much larger. Yeah, this, I think their inversion, you know, uh, it, it's issue number 10 now or something mm-hmm. like that. And this was a really big one, the one that they did uh, recently. And they're already slowing. They're in their third decade of, of weak growth. And Japan famously has been fighting deflation. Europe is very clearly having some uh, price uh, problems, Issues, uh, sure. disinflation. And actually the U.S. is too. I think that we're not that exceptional. I think in this <gasps> regard, Can I know, dare that? I say, oh, hey, I'm a, I'm a true American here, but I'm, but, <gasps> I, but I'm saying that that on this cyclical count of slow trend growth, we are it, we need to face up to what's going on. Larry Summers at the end of last year uh, went out and talked about secular stagnation, and nobody wanted to hear it. Right. I still uh, don't want to hear it. <laughs> you still don't know. It's Although not, it's not, not I don't fun. want to hear anything from him, Look, but that's all different. But thing. this isn't fun to hear. PIMCO has been talking about the new normal. These right. are all different angles on this issue. Now, is this a function of we're a more mature economy, and therefore we're going to have slower growth? Is it a function of the aging of the baby mm-hmm, boomers? Mm-hmm. Globalization, sending some jobs overseas. What is it that Bubbles, causes credit issues? Big um, deleveraging. Big. Well, I think the deleveraging actually uh, is is it's a contributing factor, but I don't think it's causing it. So what I'm saying is, when deleveraging's over, this problem doesn't go away. Doesn't go That's- away. I want to talk now in this segment where we don't have uh, any time limitations and we could just chat, open up our top buttons and chill out a little bit. So. I, you and I know each other for a long time. We go to lunch on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very familiar with your work. Mm-hmm. 
I want to talk a little bit about your track record, which for the most part has been excellent, mm-hmm. but you've been getting some grief lately mm-hmm. about the call in 2011, 2012, that, hey, the U.S. is at an increasing risk of a recession. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different things I want to come back to and discuss. Uh, you know, anyone in the public eye gets grief from a variety of people. How do you deal with that sort of stuff first? And then let's talk a little bit about the actual call and what you guys said and, and where you're going from Sure, from sure. there. And again, we mentioned during the broadcast section, section that the New York Times gave you this phenomenal sure. profile that talked about essentially said you had a perfect forecasting record. Yeah, that's which the, is yeah. uh, Right, that's the kiss of death. So they never piss off the trading gods, is right, what my right, head right. trader always used to say no. to me. Anytime you were on a roll, it's like, man, you are living dangerously. Yeah. Just shut up and stay below the radar. So it, it's almost as if a profile like that guarantees sure. the next call sure. is going to mean revert. But uh, talk a little bit about how do you deal with just the people... You know, it's so easy for people yeah. to dismiss somebody out of hand. It'd be really, it'd be really tough. I, I mean, this it takes a certain type of person to do this. First off, I mean, I, and I guess I have some of those abilities, and I don't thick think it's skin, anything. small brain. Is yeah, that what you're saying? You know, to a degree, I probably, but but I think what it is is having a framework. Uh, right. And I mean, Jeffrey Moore, my mentor, Doctor Jeffrey H. Moore, mm-hmm. uh, was um, an interesting guy. Uh, for the same reason, I don't purport to be as bright as he was, but he was able uh, in academia, which can be a pretty rough uh, environment. You know, you can get stabbed in the back there uh, often, and and he went against the grain in terms of forecasting, and he did not uh, go into the model building econometrics, and he instead stayed with the monitoring of cyclical indicators and developing that type of research, which was not in fashion in academia. And that framework that we have there mm-hmm. is what I'm uh, uh, taking advantage of today uh, at ECRI with all of our research group. I mean, just to be clear, there's a lot of people behind me. This is not all my work. I have a huge Oh, so you're team. not a one-man show. No, 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 I've no. been to your offices. It's a full floor. <laughs> it's a full floor. You have a couple of dozen people working there. Yeah, and they are focused. Like, you know, we're all really uh, impressed with this cyclical framework of monitoring the indicators. And the we actually don't even consider ourselves forecasters. We, we, we consider ourselves monitorists. We're monitoring... Uh, mm-hmm. Very limited. That's a good set word. Monitorous. Monitorous. Like and and uh, not with monot- an eye. With an not eye. with an e. Yeah. With an eye. I like it. <laughs> and uh, we're 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 watching these indicators. And so when I say to you, here's what they're saying, um, it may even go against my gut instinct. Right. But I have a lot of respect for the framework, and that is why sometimes I think I can stand in a room where everybody disagrees and say, well. Here's what I think. Here's I feel. I hope. Here's what the framework right. is. It's Here's not about. It's not about so, what some guy whispered to me in a corner somewhere. Right. You know, who supposedly knows something. It's rather. It's what the framework of objective indicators are saying. Are they moving in a pronounced, pervasive, and persistent way, one way or the other? And then it's my job to kind of figure out the story around that. Try to right. explain it. So let's put this into a little context. Here we are mm-hmm. in 2014. Mm-hmm. We just came off a, uh, a quarter that. Either was really weak or actually contracted. Yeah, it might have been contracted. There, contracted like. slightly, although now we're in the second quarter. Mm-hmm. The data looks much better. I think a lot of the weather-related issues mm-hmm. in Q1 
just deferred certain purchases, deferred certain activities to Q2. Mm -hmm. So as bad as Q1 looks, Q2 looks that much better. But how do we look at the past couple of years? How would you describe 2011 and 2012? Sure, sure, sure. Well, um, I think in 20, you know, when we look backwards, uh, time will tell if we were uh, technically correct on our recession call. It in looks, 2011. Yeah, it looks like there was a uh, the epicenter of the weakness of the downturn mm-hmm. uh, will be in the fourth quarter of 2012 mm-hmm. and in the first quarter of 2013, where you have annualized GDP growth for that half a year uh, at a fraction of 1%. Barely positive. And if you look underneath and see why, what was the growth? It was a freak outsized contribution of agriculture, which never contributes to GDP. It's a rounding right. error typically. And it made huh. up the bulk of that growth. So the rest of the economy was not in action during right. that time, right? So Essentially flat for two quarters. Or not there, nor negative. You right. see, I mean, it was the agriculture that made it just skate a little bit above. Right. And now, would that be considered? No, the, I mean, the revisions are still coming. These revisions right. are not over. So for years, and, but let's use the three Ps. So yeah. It was persistent. Does two quarters? Two quarters count? is persistent. Yeah, you okay. could have a, you could have a short recession. And then pervasive and then, was and, it throughout the entire economy? Yeah, except for agriculture, apparently. <laughs> so it was, it was nearly pervasive. <laughs> well, agriculture is not a. I mean, non-farm is where we uh, focus. Right. I mean, the farm industry is not a big component typically of this economy. So and then what about is, pronounced? Was it a deep? Uh, no, it would have been mild. It would not. That was not. That was so not a deep. That was not a deep. I, if, so at most, it was possibly a short, mild recession. Correct. That's now, absolutely that correct. That makes perfect sense to me. But uh, you've gone on television. I've seen you on Bloomberg. I've seen you on CNBC. You got into a back and forth with Joe Kernan about. And I thought you did an admirable job well, I think explaining people... what you're trying to explain in a 30 second soundbite. Yeah. But how do you deal with that sort of nonsense where well, people see, are just- I think one of the things is I- Binary. People are yeah. binary. Uh, recession, yes or no? Well, I think people equate recession with the end of the world. Right. And Which I is always a losing thing. And I don't. You know, I don't. I think a recession, uh, as bad as it can be for, for, for people who are near the collateral damage- they can be very cathartic. I mean, there's reasons right. for recessions. You know, there's it, it does squeeze out your excesses and sets right. you up, and it'll properly set you up for growth. In the current environment, one could argue uh, that all of this recession denial, or all of the policies designed to kind of like do at by hook or by crook to pull some demand from next quarter into this quarter, right? Actually is keeping is trying to subvert that process which is actually a very healthy process for a market economy uh, you know people point to the uk and say oh look it's growing well austerity works well or whatever they have some argument right actually they had two recessions right which really squeezed a lot of stuff out and set them up for some growth now i'm sorry to say that that'll that'll fade a little bit at some point but mm-hmm. uh still these recessions do set you up for uh more sustained growth. And when you have a policy, which is just so limited to pulling next quarter into this quarter, low interest rates, some some right. tax break, ultra low is, interest rates. You know, yeah. If you keep pulling demand 
from the from next quarter into this quarter, from the future into now, what's left of the future? That that's reminds me of a country song. How can I miss you if you won't go away? Yeah, there you so go. So <laughs> how could you get? How could you ever find that? pent-up demand. How could you squeeze out those excesses if you never let the cycle run its natural course? That's and that's and so the I, I get I get the arguments and I think that there are reasonable arguments for extraordinary uh, intervention uh, at the depths of the Great Recession. I get it. But that was a long time ago. Uh, that, wasn't it? <laughs> number one, yes it was. And number two I think we all know the bottom line was that we have these banks festooned yeah. with bad mortgages. Yeah. And so if we had another bad recession, we would have wasted all I those mean, another, bailout dollars when the banks would have collapsed again. Another, I, I, I don't know if that's still the case. No, today. no. I, I mean, another way of looking at it is, um, you know, the, the Fed takes rates to zero or close to them effectively. Right. And then what are they supposed to do next? Well, push on a string. So that well, they're pushing on a string, but they don't want to admit that. So what they say is, oh, now we're going to do the wealth effect. We're going to make the house price go up. We're going to make the stock price go up, and then you're going to go out and spend, right? Wrong. And the uh, wealth effect, and you see that's broken. That, that that hasn't happened. So let's talk about that because that's a pet peeve of mine. Okay. For two reasons. The the first reason is, I think, and I've written about this extensively. I think the wealth effect is something that the Fed gets completely wrong. I'm going to mm-hmm. have to go out to Jackson Hole one summer and school I think them we would on agree. this. We would agree with you from the evidence. When, I mean, when yeah. you look in a, so let's talk about a cycle for a second. Mm-hmm. When we look in a strong economic cycle, mm-hmm. you mentioned the areas that you have in recovery. You have income gains. You have employment gains. Sure. You have manufacturing gains. Sure. Uh, what was the fourth one? Income, manufacturing, uh, uh, retail sales gains. Sales, employment, production. So you had all these income. things that are yep. going positively. Oh, and what a surprise. Lots of people are working. They're getting wage gains. They're going out and spending that money mm-hmm. on houses, cars, and other consumer goods, both durable and non-durable. Uh, manufacturing and exports are working well. And, oh, by the way, the stock market. Mm-hmm. is doing really well in those circumstances. Hey, it looks like it looks like when the stock market goes up, everybody's really happy. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's getting the causation backwards. The positive fundamental underlying factors that are rising or lifting all boats, that's the tail that's wagging the dog. The stock market isn't what's making all these good things happen. All these good things are making the stock market. That's how higher. it should. That's how and it works. And that's where the works. Fed gets it backwards. Well, typically it, it, it does work that way. And that's why in 12 out of the last 15 downturns, you've seen the stock market react. And three of them, they didn't. To the, the negative. Ro- right, the roaring the 20s, downside. it didn't. Now, remember the roaring 20s? I mean, I don't. I wasn't born, but they sound. I vaguely remember. <laughs> but they sound. Barely remember. It I was sounds, so young. Then. It sounds pretty, uh, you know, they were, people were pretty excited, right? And so they, sure. had, they had a recession. They had those crazy dances. Well, they had and... the flappers. They had the crazy dances. They had all kinds of. And so, yet no booze. What was I mean, about? you can imagine, uh, you know, if there was, uh, you know, n- n- no disrespect to Jim Cramer here, but if there was a Jim Cramer there, he would have been saying bye, 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 right, right. That's <laughs> at right. that at that moment. And and so here we have a recession. It's a it's a full blown, pronounced, pervasive, persistent, whatever in in all the indicators from twenty six to twenty seven. Stock market goes up thirty percent. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, recession ends. Now the fundamentals are back uh, in in play, and, and you get another two years of market gains. Eighty percent. Not too shabby. And then it all ends badly. Because Well, uh, given those numbers, no surprise. Well, and it was built there was some there was some uh there was Scams, some bank, Ponzi and schemes, New York Fed was active, and... other things. There was different kinds of consumer financing was coming in, all, all right. kinds of leverage. Okay. So that's we're not that. But what it what that shows you is that what's going on now 
has happened before. Sure. Okay, this it's it's not like everything's broken and it doesn't make any sense. This this can happen, but it does suggest that um, that feeling that you have that it might not end well. Right. Uh, you know, there's some precedent for that. Right. Uh, and I can't say uh, that tomorrow's going to be bad or whatever, but you know, ultimately, uh, if we don't have uh, stronger economic growth on a sustained basis. That disconnect between some of the expectations and the fundamentals may uh, have to get reconciled. So uh, that brings us back to your previous comment that you end up with you end up with a situation where you have more frequent recessions, even though they're more shallow. And See, so, so is that what we're no, no, heading no? They're towards? not necessarily more. They don't have to be more shallow. So, in uh, remember Japan uh, seventeen years ago. Uh, on April 1st, raised its uh, uh, tax. And this past April 1st, they raised their tax again, sales tax. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't work out well. Cause either the, time. Either, well, the, currently it, it doesn't seem to be working out too well. And uh, last time- Didn't it, they it, just print like a 5.9% GDP or something crazy like in that? In anticipation of the tax. So if you're- Ah, so everybody's front running the yeah. new- So Q2 is going to be a jerk back the other way. So- When does the tax take effect? Uh, April 1. So all of Q1. Of next year. Of just now. Oh, so I so got all, you. So Q1 was before the tech. Got correct. It. So you bought your bicycle or your air conditioner right. before, and then uh, you didn't have to pay 5% more in tax. Is that what it is? It's 5%? Yeah, they doubled uh, that. It. They doubled it, practically, right? Huh. So Aren't when, they trying to stimulate spending? Why would you want to put a further drag on I will you, not. I will not- Try to explain the policies of these countries. <laughs> I, I'm not a I'm not a free market absolutist, but it's pretty clear if you want more of something, tax it less. If you want less of something, tax it more. Well, and I would say from a cycle point of view, where I can add something uh, that that when the cycle is uh, decelerating, you probably don't want to push it down further. I you know if I if I had to raise taxes at some point, I'd do it when the cycle was going up, not when it was going down, as they did in 1997. Now. People think Japan has had deflation forever. Actually, no, it didn't start till 98 after this policy mistake where they raised taxes going mm -hmm. into a downturn. And that recession that they had, uh, 97, 98, was one of the nastiest, most severe recessions they've had. And it brought to that economy real persistent deflation. Now, in Europe, you're fighting disinflation. In the U.S., you're fighting disinflation. We're not at deflation, right. uh, but although we have been seeing signs of an uptick in inflation, you've recently. seen an, in 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 the stuff that normal people care about, which is food and energy. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, the cost of your iPad might go down a little bit, but uh, the food and the energy part uh, that is non-discretionary, uh, that part's going up. So the money that's left for discretionary spending is smaller, which is very cyclical mm -hmm. is smaller. And so the cyclical piece of your economy, right? When you look at the rebound, the so-called rebound in retail sales that we had, uh, in the last, uh, print, you'll, you'll notice that it's what people need. It's not what they want. Right. they're buying. And I think that kind of describes That's very insightful. Stuff. That describes what's going on. I mean, uh, and, and when we talk about who, who, who can benefit from looking at cyclical risk, if you're on the business side, uh, if you're uh, a, a discretionary type of business, your product is somewhat discretionary, very cyclical. You have to be very sensitive to the right. cycle. If you sell toilet paper, you know, even in a downturn, you're going to sell toilet paper. 
So <laughs> this raises an interesting question, not so much about toilet paper, but about who are the folks that use your research? Who are your, you don't have to name names, yeah. but who are the sort of people who are your clients? It's really those who want to manage cyclical risk. So in broad strokes, you'll have- So that, does that, that includes governments? Yeah. Industry? Yes. Investors? All three. So, Primar so, so in, 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 for investors, uh, it's, it's uh, largely around an asset allocation decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, because more we, look, stocks, it's, more it's bonds. Not, it's not a Got day it. trader stuff, right? The day traders right. couldn't couldn't really care about our stuff. Uh, but right. but it, but are it, there any day traders left? Anyway? <laughs> I, I think I think that they're you know Stegosaurus and day traders are kind of there. You go about the same number are roaming the yeah, earth. Yeah, no, but it's, if you want to look at what what region of the world, what country, stocks and bonds, real estate, commodities, those kinds of asset. Uh, shifts, Allocation backs, decisions. and forth. Yeah. That's stuff that cycle uh, indicators can tell you about the risk of things going one way or another. And when you look at businesses, the cyclical businesses, where there's, where there's a discretionary spending component, those are the businesses that are um, really interested in managing cycle risk. Manufacturing is very interested sure. in that. They're very cyclical. Uh, so those kind of companies. And what about governments? You guys actually yeah. date recessions yeah. for 21 countries. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a, a, a strange session. I'm dating yeah, yeah. a recession. Well, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. When, when, does it, when does it become serious? So well, yeah. for 21 countries, you're the arbiter of when a recession begins. Right. So it? for policymakers, I mean, I think uh, certainly um, at the central bank level, there's a lot of interest. Uh, I, I, I think for longer term policymakers, like how do we get out of this mess? Uh, there's interest, but uh, it's more on a theoretical level uh -huh. uh, because if we are in this low growth, more frequent recession, it does all kinds of things to your uh, budget policy. Uh, you know, because you're going to have right. high on, you know, long-term unemployment's going to be high, disability payments are going to be high, all sure. these other transfers are going to be high. So your budget issues are are there, and there's no clear policy that is going to jerk your trend growth rate up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and this isn't something that's simply about the U.S. We're seeing it in Europe. We're seeing it in Japan. This is glo a global phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon of more developed economies, and it may have demographics. It may have globalization. It certainly, I think, productivity growth is an issue, which has been pretty weak. Right. Uh, now, so is it weak because it's gained so much over the past 30 years, or is it just weak because companies aren't investing in... CapEx and other such things that improve productivity the way they did 10 years ago? Well, um, probably a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. uh, probably a little bit of both. I mean, that's a an interesting, I was talking earlier this morning about the policies, you know, low interest rates or, or a tax break on CapEx. And it's interesting because you're essentially paying businesses to the extent they will invest to invest uh -huh. in something that'll get rid of a job. <laughs> it, you know, that's a lot of what they're what they've been doing and when you look at businesses I, I you, you may have seen Larry Fink uh, from BlackRock sure. wrote a letter uh, to his peers uh, I in recall industry, about uh, 2 months ago yeah. and he said please Please, please start spending, start spending your money. Right, right. You know, and sitting on record amounts of cash, but breaks and, them out. And um, but the businesses are not that interested in doing it because the demand is, you know, lackluster. It's kind of blah. One one of the things we noticed really early to mid two thousands, uh, people call it business intelligence or other types of software. There's a a few dozen publicly traded companies, everything from Salesforce mm -hmm. to business objects. There's tons of them. 
And when you speak to the people who are fairly senior in those companies, they'll basically say our whole presentation is to walk into any company and say, this software is going to cost you $12 million. And the CEO, CFO, wants to kick him out of the room. And he says, before you throw me out, it's going to save you $37 million in the first two years alone. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, I'll refund the $12 million. Mm -hmm. Go on. I'm listening. There you go. Here's what it does. Here's how it makes you more efficient. Here's how much staff you could lay off, yep. blah, blah, blah. So, look, I know my office, what we do with less than 10 people, 10, forget 20 years ago, 10 years ago would have taken 40 people to do Yeah, you know, there was a Dilbert uh, comic a, few, a year or two ago where uh, the caption says that the job market is uh, 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 changing quicker than people can evolve. <laughs> and that's kind of what we're in. And, and it's displaced a lot of people uh, who will not be able to work. And it's not even just in the U.S. It's happening in Europe. It's happening right. in Japan. And you see uh, older people are having to work longer. Right. Uh, Before and, they retire. And Absolutely. younger people are having a tougher time uh, starting off in a good spot. And that impacts their entire career path for their mm -hmm. life. So, Where they begin. Yeah. The, the era, if you graduate college in the midst of recession – your lifetime earnings are significantly lower than someone who graduates in the midst of a boom. Luck of the draw. Un just un just the absolutely, timing. Uh, Has nothing to do with the skill set. So we also notice we're creating a lot of tech jobs. We're yep. creating a lot of energy jobs. Yep. But we're also creating a lot of low-wage jobs. That's the and thing. And so it's restaurant workers. It's employees. The it's energy jobs are high-paying, mining and energy and these and kind of- dangerous they're, they're, And dangerous and dirty. And they don't employ that many people. Right. I mean, yeah, if you can get them, they're, they're, they're interesting and high-paying jobs. Move to North Dakota where the unemployment rate is zero. But there's, but there's not, and it's not going to move the dial on the big numbers. And what you see is average hourly earnings is going up. Ticking up slowly. Uh, and that sounds pretty good, right? But it's it's heavily weighted with it's a fathead long tail. But it's actually not even true. If, I mean, it's true that it's going up, but it's going up for a statistically poor reason. The reason it's going up is because the pace at which your hours are being reduced is <laughs> slowing down. Is go is it? They're being reduced faster than your wage is being reduced. Oh, uh, so people are working less but getting paid more per no, hour. Yeah, yeah, no, they're both going down. You're getting, you're working less hours, and you're getting paid less. But the hours are falling faster than your pay, but, so your average hourly earnings go up. But net, net income, <laughs> but it's gross a horrible income reason. Is, is gross down. income is going down. Yeah, exactly. And that's so, really the only thing that matters. To and somebody. your savings rate, people are diving into their savings, and right. it's down at a low, low level. Uh, we, and when you go to credit, uh, the kind of credit you can get is um, you can get stuff that's collateralized, like a car loan. Right. Uh, and you might even have to stretch it or out over seven years. For that matter. You can get a mortgage, but they'd rather sell a house to somebody who's paying cash, and a lot of right. people do pay cash. Just By the way, there's <laughs> just something, and I've been back and forth with Jonathan Miller about this today. Something came out today. I, it, I sent it to him because it mm -hmm. struck me as wrong. 80% of the homes purchased in Manhattan are purchased with cash. There you go. Seems like an ex that number just seems way high. It might be 80% of condos or Well, but still it's but a you huge get the number. point. I mean whether whether the number's wrong, that's the the general thrust of that is if correct. You got ca cash is king. The cash can go out and buy, but when, but most people don't. You know, most people have to they can't afford to buy a house outright. And and so it's either speculative business or just wealthy people who are doing it or wealthy mm -hmm. global people who are doing it. The Chinese are trying to get the money out of China because they've said we're going to slow this thing down. 
So you get your money out, right. and it's either London, New York, or California, Vancouver, or Vancouver. Vancouver, right. you there are these they call them see through towers. Right, not like in the 1980s where it was a pejorative term in Dallas <laughs> when the energy boom busted and they had all these buildings that were unrented. See. They have these hot, gorgeous luxury high rise apartment buildings. Fully sold out, almost no one living there. Almost like all of them vertical are. ghost towns. But it's an asset that they're holding. Right. And, the, and if and they have to, it's a lifeboat. If they have to get out, they have a place to live. Or a student loan, Govern, government guaranteed student loan. And you've seen the growth there has been pretty uh, healthy. Massive, yeah. Right. So, but when you go to uh, just regular consumer credit uh, or other kinds of loans, or, you know, if you've got, if you go through the motions, I think someone putting 20% down, they got to put 20% down for a house. Right. And it's, it's not terribly easy to get the mortgage. You got to go through a lot of stuff to get it. Plus, you have the return of PMI. You have the return of mortgage insurance. I'm hearing some people, and again, I know enough people in the real estate industry that this is anecdotal but interesting. Um, and we we know the plural of anecdote isn't data. Right. However, when you hear someone say they're putting 20% down and therefore they don't have to put uh, any sort of mortgage insurance, and then by the time they're done with closing costs and this and that- yep. Yep. Uh, you know, you're kind of on the border of getting approved for this. We want you to have mortgage insurance anyway if you want us to underwrite the mortgage. Mm -hmm. So now in Canada, which had a huge housing boom but didn't have a bus like we did, mortgage insurance is fairly mandatory. And unless you put – it used to be 25% down. I think they lowered that to 20% down. Mm -hmm. So And pretty much they have a highly regulated – there are no exotic negative amortization, interest-only mortgages. It's pretty straightforward. So, uh, yeah, there's credit in the United States, but it's not certainly not loose credit. It's not easy to get a mortgage, and uh, unless you have a high income and a good credit rating and plenty of room, you're not overextending yourself, you're going to have a tough time getting a mortgage in the United States and Not what's a the surprise, policy? Uh, and, and so what's and so so what's interesting? That's the kind of the lay of the land. And and what's interesting is that it, at the end of last year, we have the second half of last year, we have some growth. And there, the there second is, half of twenty thirteen, twenty thirteen, there is some lift happening to the economy, and we're mm -hmm. looking for it to be pronounced, pervasive, and persistent. And Q1 we won't put an end, end of that. Well, right? so we get pronounced and we get pervasive. We didn't get persistent. And w the leading indicators, the mm -hmm. forward-looking indicators at the end of last year had all turned down before the weather got bad. Right. The leading indicators of construction had turned down well before the weather got bad. The leading indicators of home price inflation turned down even before the taper tantrum when Bernanke right. opened his mouth. So- that was it, last June, July. Yeah, that no, this is last spring. Yeah, it's over yeah. a year ago. And so, what what this is saying is that when we go back to what is a cycle, why is there one? It's it's part of the free market. That there were these endogenous cyclical forces that had been rolling over before Bernanke opens his mouth, before the bad weather, and then. Uh, we get something like Q1. Now, I'm not saying Q1 uh, GDP w as weak as it was was um, unrelated to weather. I think weather had a lot to do with it, obviously. And so we will get some bounce back from that. But the, but that, I suspect, is noise. I think the hmm. trend inside down. of that remains down. And when we look at the forward indicators, there's no imminent lift right. that's, that, that's there. And so you look at um, 
the thinking on the economy and there seems to be confusion. You know, there's 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 still a relatively kind of optimistic 2014, we're going to get escape velocity, so on and so forth. But there are serious signals like bond yields, for example, that are saying, mm, you know, there's something happening. Maybe it's geopolitical stuff. Maybe it's something else. We don't know exactly, but it doesn't fit this picture of everything's green light. Right. No, no that, doubt about you know, that. You, you mentioned Bernanke, who's no longer at the Fed. Mm-hmm. What sort of relationship does ECRI have with uh, the Federal Reserve? Um, you know, nothing uh, that I can like officially speak of or anything like mm-hmm. that. I, what I can talk about is that uh, earlier there was a there was a close personal relationship between my mentor Jeffrey Moore and uh, Chairman Greenspan, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know, Bernanke was probably aware of all of that. And I I do know that, you know, the, the central banks are aware of our stuff, and in particular the future inflation gauge, right? Because they'd love to see some inflation, right? They're looking they, for action. They would inflation. love to see some inflation, and anywhere, and in Europe too, in Europe it's too. it's not that. And these, and these future inflation gauges for the Eurozone and for the U.S. Um, have been in down, you know, week for an extended period of time. Recently, at the end of last year, the future inflation gauge started to pick up a little bit. Right. Uh, but it seems to have stalled out. Uh, which is kind of a a concern, uh, do, right? Do you ever look at things like the billion price project that pro, billion price project at MIT where they're tracking all these online prices? Sure. Instead of relying on the BLS output. Sure, sure, sure. And that's a that's a that's a very interesting way to get at where prices are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, we think that's very interesting. It's a coincident indicator, right? Uh, not it doesn't really tell you anything about the future. So, but but that's still a nice alternate uh, data set. We look at the BLS uh, data. We look PPI, CPI, G- GDP deflator. All of these items we're looking at, right? Uh, and all heavily modeled with all sorts of all heavily modeled. But what happens is over time they're going to get the cyclical direction right, right? And just ignore the the markings on the vertical access yeah. and look at the line. Yeah, I don't I don't yeah, I don't say that any one of these numbers is correct, mm-hmm. you know. I, I but but is this is the just general came up trend. This, just right. came up this morning the Boskin commission. Right. Uh, a friend had tweeted uh, on the uh, his handle on Twitter is a relevant investor that uh, his wife was complaining that lamb chops are now too expensive. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Hey, the Boskin commission said you could substitute Chicken wings for that, and it's the same thing. <laughs> There's no food inflation. Just because you've been priced out of one food and are substituting a cheaper food, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to take a any way to not show higher inflation back in the 70s and 80s, and today it's the opposite. Today they want to show something. I was talking with somebody who was writing an article, and they're, and, and they're basically like, what are you, are you going to believe the, the, the statistic or your lying eyes? I mean, right. you know, if you're, we all know. We all are, are seeing- But you also have to put that into perspective. We fill our cars with gasoline, and there are 10 feet tall prices on each corner showing the sign of that. But, uh, you know, I spend $50 a week on gasoline- is not by go back thirty years. Fuel was nine percent of the family budget. Today, even at at a hundred dollars a barrel, it's two and a half percent. Right. So even though we see that, we don't realize 
that could look in Europe. It's twelve dollars a gallon, so that's mm-hmm. a whole different story. But I think people's perspective on what they're spending money on—you don't really see what, what college costs, what healthcare costs, until you write that check for how much. And that's gone up in a huge way, much bigger impact than what you buy every day, and, and has a disproportionate you, impact to you. You see, and, and it goes back to needs and wants. And and I think what may be happening is that. You're right. The the energy component, say at the gas tank, is a smaller fraction of your family budget than it used to be. But what's happening is that you don't have a lot of money left over for discretionary spending at the end of the day. And that uh, is making you either go into your savings right. uh, or take out credit. And taking out credit, which can worked be a little, out so well in 06. Yeah, I mean the 08. plan here is to get you to borrow money, more money, right? right? Which is so, a terrible idea, and as that's we've, the, as we've that, learned. See, so this is where you see where the policy um, of, I think, denying what is happening is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going back to three percent trend growth anytime not, soon, or never. No, just uh, not, not the next not, decade. Yeah, it looks like five, 10 years, it's not happening, mm-hmm. right? And so if that is indeed true, and I, th- I think I can argue pretty strongly that it is, then shouldn't our policies consider that possibility? And No, and, and, <laughs> we, don't, we, we don't want to think about it. Here's our policies, uh, and I'm not listening. Nah, so nah, the nah, policy nah. instead is, oh, you know, don't worry. <laughs> don't freak out. Be happy. Uh, interest rates will stay low. Spend money. Go borrow some house, money. Buy a house. Buy a car. You know, and if you Shut def- up and consume. And if you default, it was your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a weird uh, setup here. Well, it is true. If you default, it's your yeah, fault. I know. But you're the one who talked me into buying money. this in the first place. When the Wait, policy you, is to borrow. Right. You see. That's right. Uh, and um, I don't know how the whole student loan thing will get reconciled, but at some point that'll have to. The uh, Elizabeth you know. Warren proposal to say, "Hey, people who are, uh, you know, we've bailed out banks. You have this trillions in student loans. Why not reset that to the what we're currently lending? Uh, you'll you'll it'll be tremendously stimulative because suddenly all these st- students will be able to afford to move out of their parents' basements, or they'll buy another uh, Apple product." Um, they're, buying, <laughs> they're buying that Apple product anyway. The question is, can we get them out of their parents' basements? And to form a house. To, for, household for, formation, yeah, yeah, yeah. get married, have 2.3 kids, buy, no, a ha- buy a car, and that's how we'll get... You know, the, the weird thing about the millennials, the group that I think are defined as being born between 1980 and 2000, mm-hmm. strictly in numbers, not necessarily in proportions, but in numbers, they're a bigger group than the baby boomers were. Right, like this is potentially a demographic cohort that can drive. Now the problem if they is they have jobs. And they're income. risk averse. They're yeah. underemployed. They're unemployed or underemployed. They're forming households at a much lower rate than the previous generation because did. their peer group is in the same situation. There's nothing kind of like I, I think, uh, you know, in an earlier generation, if you lived at home, it was like, ah, what what are you doing? You got to right. get out, right? right. And because your peers were. Right. Now, if your peers are at home, I can stay at home too. Right. Uh, there's That's a different. Right. It's a slightly different mentality. It's you, far less socially no uh, framed upon. It. Right. No. That's It's not stigmatized like it would have been with the generation. Now, born I'm not going to get. That. I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but the power. I'm going to be able to paraphrase this. Uh, I want to go to the other end of the spectrum to, mm-hmm. to, to retirees. And uh, during Yellen's confirmation, it may. I think it was a Senate confirmation uh, hearing. Yes, it uh, has to be. And there was there was. Uh, a, a senator from a, a retiree state, like an Arizona uh, right. state, something like that. And so it's uh, either McCain or whoever. Wasn't McCain? McCain's it was junior another, senator. It was someone I don't. Yeah, it was probably a junior senator. And so he says, you know, uh, Miss Yellen, um, 
my constituents have done everything that they were supposed to do. They, they worked, they saved for their retirement. Uh, they worked out their budget. They set everything up and your policies are crushing them because of the zero interest rates. Not so far from the truth. And she responds, and it was an amazing moment of, I'm going to say cognitive dissonance, uh, where she says, well, you know, my policies, or our, I think Chairman Bernanke's policies that she was right. going, saying she was going to continue, um, you know, they shouldn't look at it that way. They should look at it uh, that these policies are giving them an economy that, not they in a can go. Recession. Th- they can go and find a job in, right? So, assuming they can. But it's. I thought it was kind of funny that you're telling a retiree to go find a job, and that's the um, plan. So, so <laughs> here's, isn't that weird? Uh, here's the more articulate way she should have said that. <laughs> hey, listen, we're confronted. Uh, let me let me put it this way. Imagine if someone pushes a button and everybody who testifies in Congress has to tell the truth. Right, just just nice. hypothetical. So uh, it's like that Jim Carrey movie. That's right, liar, liar, which <laughs> right. is which is utterly hilarious. But imagine if you could push the truth button and Yellen says, I, I, "I'm completely empathetic to the people yeah. in your state. However, you have to understand this economy is hanging on by its fingernails. You have a Congress that refuses to do what we normally do after recession, which is stimulate. In fact, if this economy would have, if this Congress." would have did what the Congress in 0102 did, then we'd have a 2.5% GDP and a 5% uh, unemployment rate. Instead, government, state, local, and federal are a drag on the economy because they're laying off huge numbers of policemen, firemen, teachers, etc. So that's the first truth I have to share with you. Mm-hmm. And the second truth I have to share with you is we're the only game in town, and if we stop QE... At least this is what I believe she mm-hmm. believes. Mm-hmm. If we stop QE, mm-hmm. you you idiots keep telling me that QE doesn't work and the policy is a failure. Hey, if I stop this, we're back in a recession. Home prices plummet. Rates normalize. Banks that have their books laden with bad mortgages start not only going but this bad, is the thing. We end up back in a great recession again, well, and you, you guys aren't going to be able to fix this. You one. don't know that it would be a. I would. I would. I'm just telling yeah, you, you that if saying, she I was telling right, the truth, that that's what she would say. She would say, "Hey, do you want us to let Bank America, City, Merrill, Goldman? You want us to let those guys but go bank false, again? Because you guys spent a, a trillion dollars saving." And it's a false setup to even think that we can avoid recessions. I think that's right. part of the bad framing here. And if we want to go down the road of like different scenarios, what might have happened? I I, I sometimes wonder. Um, what if uh, the Great Recession was greater? So my, you know, look, uh, I'm talking my book now. Mm-hmm. You know my view was, hey, the right thing to do is down the street, we have that nice building with the mm-hmm. vertical columns. Mm-hmm. It's called a bankruptcy court. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if you're Goldman Sachs or Lehman or Bank mm-hmm. America Citigroup. What we ended up doing for GM, mm-hmm. prepackaged bankruptcy where the government is providing yep. the debtor in possession finance, uh, the the dib finance, uh, that's the he- that's tearing off the band aid. Yeah. Maybe the Dow wouldn't have found a bottom at six and change. Maybe the six 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 bottom in the S and P would have been five 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 or four four four. You but in tear the big off- picture, if that sets you up for better, but then you're much yeah. healthier. My huh. favorite example is you take the Bank America Merrill Lynch countrywide mm-hmm. company, which yep. is one company. Yep. You basically say to to countrywide. 
your to, to that whole group. You're you're yeah. bankrupt. So we're going to spin out Merrill Lynch as a freestanding, debt-free investment bank. We're going to spin out Countrywide as a freestanding, debt-free, no bad mortgages. Get rid of the zombies. Uh, right. Zombies, yeah. right? We're going to take Bank of America. We're going to take all of your shareholders and wipe them out. We're going to take your bondholders and give them a giant haircut. So the bonds are worth 15 cents on the dollar. We're going to take all the what people are calling toxic assets, but really it's toxic prices. These assets at 10, 15, 20 cents on the dollar have upside. We're going to spin that out and sell it to the public. Then we take Bank America and we spin them out as a freestanding clean bank. Yeah. And if we do that bank after bank after bank, it's a lot of turmoil. It's a lot of fear. But it's over at the end of 2009. You have a healthy economy with a healthy banking system and the possibility of normal, not Fed manipulated growth. But politically, that was especially when you uh, again, I'm going to I'm going to when you have a surgical screw up, yep. you don't send the guys in to fix it who are operating on the patient. So taking well, see, this is taking thing. Larry oh, well. Summers and taking Tim Geithner who were two of many key players who helped create the crisis, Understood. putting these guys back in charge. There's not going to be an admission of, hey, we really screwed up. We no, no, no. A greater recession, see, a, a great recession, among other things, uh, may have resulted in a more wholesale change in Washington. Uh, huge change. Had. You see, because it takes a lot, like people- like, Ex explore, Explain that, because I'm on the same page as you are. Yeah, I mean, it? look at the, uh, you, you know, you know, because then you're going to say, I, I don't want you to try to fix it. I want someone new. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> that's kind of and what you're going to say not, as a Not group. only do I not want you to fix it, you and your party, you the Republicans, you the Democrats, you're both out. Yeah, it's not. We're going to try it's not a something new. Thing. Right. And by the way, this idea of finance being thirty percent, twenty five percent of the economy, let once these guys go belly up, that reverts back to its historical me. It was wildly outsized. We had financialized our economy. The process of definancializing the economy was interrupted by the bailouts. You know, and, and you know, again, taking that really big picture over a couple of centuries, 47 recessions in, 20, in 222 years, some of them were bad, uh, some of them were mild, but we've survived Every all one of them. them. Right. Why, Winter always comes. What is this notion? Uh, this is what I would really push back against, is what is this notion that we can do all kinds of crazy things in 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 the name of avoiding a recession, the, that is a silly. That is a really silly thing uh, for policymakers to actually do, because the price you're paying uh, relates to significant components of the future, and we're feeling it that now. I think dramatically people, reduced growth. Over I think the long people term. feel that, and look at you can look around at other major developed economies, and you look at Europe, and they're they're sick in many ways and you right. look at Japan and they're sick in many ways for decades and do we really want to do the same thing I mean can we consider something else that well this is what <laughs> happens when you have a finance sector that's very fragile and you have a banking sector right. so the good news is and you could tell me if this is in any of the data right five years later right we have an economy that uh, in theory, a lot of the bad housing has been bought by private equity because mm -hmm. they've been able to borrow money for practically sure. free. Sure. So you have $35 billion in PE funds that are, are have become the new home flippers, mm -hmm. right? They're buying, renting them, and they're going to wait a period of time. 
You have banks that have been slowly shedding all these mortgages and all these foreclosures and, and bank old real estate. Sure. Um, but you have this. But reach. we don't really know what the data is because they well, don't have to disclose it. Anymore. You know, the, the, this is true. And, you know, interest rates are a very important component of the free market. For sure. And when, when you interfere... And 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 put your thumb manage, on the scale. Control. Manage control. Look, isn't that even the opposite of what a free market is? By the way, <laughs> that that was always the great that was always the great paradox about Alan Greenspan, the yeah. ultimate Randy free and free marketer who refused to take his hand off the wheel. Here you go. So so here, I, you know, you might argue under certain emergency moments you have to do things, but. At what point is the emergency over, and when do we get to see what it feels like without the pain medicine, mm-hmm. and what where we really are? Uh, because that ten is, years after the crisis, that ends. is an important thing to understand. What does it feel like to stand on your leg? Twenty nineteen. You're not going to know that until uh, that's my my. Okay. I don't do forecasts. The right. one prediction I'm willing to make is you're probably not going to see that. One of two things happen: either. 10 years elapse, mm-hmm. or someone named Paul, as mm-hmm. their last name, becomes elected mm-hmm. president. Mm-hmm. So if Ron Paul or Rand Paul becomes president, then then, and I, I, by the way, I'm, I'm, right. I'm wishy-washy on both of them, although I find Ron Paul to be a fascinating dude. But, you, but when you get someone who's going to step in and say, hey, I'm a libertarian, and I don't believe the government should be interfering in the free market, therefore I'm going to have the Fed stand down, and if we go into a recession... It'll be cleansing. It'll be cathartic, and and the economy if, will eventually. When. We will. We we will. It's not even if. It, right. the, the idea that you're not going to go into a recession is just farcical. It's ludicrous. Okay? Right. It, it will happen. And I would feel much better if I was on the policy and responsible for policy, or just even as an American, mm-hmm. if uh, we had an interest rate to cut. That's uh, right. When we went into when we went into that's recession. an asset. <laughs> Actually being able to cut rates, but having is an interest rates high enough that you could. Uh, on a tactical basis, reduce an interest rate from the central bank because the fiscal side can't move that quickly. Now, I know it, we're it's not like prepared. the emergency in case yeah. of emergency break glass. <laughs> that glass is broken. There's it's nothing already there. broken. There's something yeah. here. So I look. We're not Japan. Japan is so different than us. We're, we we have a lot of things going for us that that they, that don't. they don't. But when you look at them and they're into their third lost decade, I, I don't even think people understand that. They it's are, a generation. It's two generations. They're 25, four or five years into this thing, right? So um, here they are, and uh, they own a ton of their treasury market. Of their treasury market, the, their own. The, J, the Japanese uh, treasury market is the second largest treasury market in the world. US, right. And the Bank of Japan owns most of it. Right, uh, and they're, they're lending re- money to themselves. Yeah, at least they know what it's come looking for. This is, and that's even kind of a weird concept if you think too hard about it. Well, you know? it, it, <laughs> people, my, my, again, my anti-Fed friends would say, "Isn't that what the Federal Reserve is doing?" Buying yeah, they the US are. Debt? They are, and, and I, you know, if you start to think too much about it, it gets bothersome. But but let's <laughs> not think too much about it just yet. And and just one one, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. There was no private bid for a JGB for a day and a half. That's unbelievable. That's a problem. Well, but I mean, what's that's the a, yield? That's Their a re- ten years yeah. like point six. Now, it's what if nothing. they get what if they get what they wish for and interest rates go up? They're, they're, they're they'll be able t- to sell more debt. They're in trouble. But their ongoing uh, debt is going to be more expensive. They can't service it. So, right. so damned if you is, do. This is one of the reasons why I think you really do need to 
believe the the Fed in the U.S. that they want to get out of this game, right? Uh, and that they're serious about getting out of it, and that the plan is that the economy needs to uh, reach escape velocity uh, soon. And I'm afraid on that last part, yeah, uh, escape velocity isn't happening. So, so let's put you in charge of policy for a moment. Let's have a hypothetical Please. conversation. <laughs> you're in charge of policy. What do you do? All policy. You're you're uh, philosopher king. What do you do? Yeah, you know, I would I would I would be less scared of a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's bullet of, point number one. Recessions are going to happen. Learn to de- learn rece- to expect it. Deal with it. And don't be freaked out by yeah, it. Yeah, don't be freaked out by it. Don't uh, the war- wheel always turns. The wheel always turns. I mean, there there are lots of policy challenges that we have, but the main one is that our trend growth uh, is so low. Do we do anything about that, or is that just you, a fact of life that we have to no, accept? No, you 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 have to think about uh, productivity. So uh, what what could we do to improve productivity? I'm open in the for United suggestions States. on that, uh, right. but but the, but here you're probably talking about destroy Facebook and productivity goes up. You're probably talking about different ideas around uh, 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 infrastructure and education, right. And things of this nature. But and I'm not an expert on either of those. But those are areas where those are productivity enhancing type um, policies that you want to be thinking about. And give um, give me an example of a productivity enhancing policy. Well, let's just say that some of the infrastructure worked better. <laughs> uh, listen, you're talking, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, man. every day when you go in the office, someone's like, "Oh my gosh, I was stuck for." We're here in New York City, and and you know, I was stuck in the subway for 20 minutes because X Y Z happened. See, I only take the seven, there which is go. the best of. I, I, but a s- couple of years ago, I was in trouble. It was well, but they complete <laughs> that's that's an infrastructure example. There you go. They completely renovated this line. Good and investment. The, and there the trains come like uh, you. Anyone who runs for a seven is an idiot. Mm-hmm. Because they seem to come every two and a half minutes, and I'm not. So is that it, a productivity enhancement? Huge, enormous. You can rely on it. It's there. You you see the train. Uh, you know, I'm walking down the stairs. The doors are open. I don't run to. The doors close. They there's a term called pre walking. Mm-hmm. You walk to the spot on the platform that's going to let you off at where you want to be in the and your exit stop. Professional commuter. Yes, and they're <laughs> different for every stop, so sure. people don't all bunch up. It's sure. not. This, this there's some really fascinating in um, terms of queuing uh, and spacing uh, people out. Right, yeah. civic engineering. There's a lot of fascinating things. So the pre-walking is. So I've uh, this happened this morning. I walk down the stairs, and as I'm walking down the stairs to the seven, as the subway doors start to close, people are running, and I'm just thinking to myself, idiots, you know, yeah. just morons. And by the time I walk halfway down the platform to where I know. What I get into is going to let me out by the stairs where I'm going to get out in Grand Central. The other train is already pulling into the platform. They come like three, they're three, during rush hour, they're three minutes. It's, it might as well be a giant conveyor belt. That's a, that's a, a, a a good example. Um, But these things, you know, I don't think there's any one silver bullet here. Uh, and, it never is. And only with other, vampires and the wa- other, werewolves. The other component is if you have the, this this theoretical preemptive Fed policy, right? Uh, where if they're ahead of the cycle, not behind it, 
uh, then they could act counter-cyclically. When there's a run-up in the cycle, they could tamp it down. Right. When there's a downturn, they can cut off the bottom a little bit. Smooth out and, the extremes. And smooth the volatility uh, a little bit towards a la the great moderation, right? Um, now, the problem with the great moderation is that uh, if you look at it closely, um, the best explanation is we were lucky. <laughs> it's, the, not, it's not that the Fed did anything particularly right. helpful. And, and when you look at Fed policy over time, you find that they're very reactive, mm -hmm. uh, including the most recent cycle. Uh, they were late to the game. Uh, yeah, and, totally. And, and, and then they've, the been, they've been trying to make up for it Rem in size, and that's actually pro-cyclical. Right. Because if you're behind the, the curve- The highs are higher, the lows are if lower. If you're behind the curve, if you think about an engineering kind of thing and these feed, the, the way it feeds back, uh, it actually makes the cycle bigger, and they're behind it in a big way. Right. And Remember, subprime was contained. You see, so this also bugs me a little bit because, uh, you know, at some point- uh, that volatility comes back. And that, when you're at low altitude, uh -huh. uh, makes, for, makes for a bumpy ride. And uh, we don't even have interest rates anywhere where you can lower them. Right. So this is why I have some anxiety. <laughs> so if, if we were an aircraft and Q1 comes yeah. along, we're essentially scraping our belly along the the go. top of the wheat fields if we're lucky, maybe even See, hitting, this hitting is, ground. You know, and, and, and when we look at the statistics on the United States and on Europe and on uh, and on Japan in particular, uh, the patterns are basically the same. Uh, you know, we I, I know that people here look across the pond at continental Europe and we say, yeah, you guys got problems. Yeah, you have some inflation issues. Right. But actually, we're a mirror image of that. Uh, and both of us are actually kind of following a track that Japan uh, is, is there in front of us on it. And so- I don't think we can really reasonably claim that we're different here. So back to the original question, what would benevolent dictator Lakshman do? Well, the one first, thing I The first thing you said was be a little more anticipatory and not as reactive. Well, the you, second thing I'm hearing yeah. is if you're going to spend spend on productivity enhancing things like infrastructure, roads, bridges, cell systems, internet, Education, training, go down the whole the whole run. What is that? What else is left for us to do to get back on track? I, I would, uh, and I expect I would, an op-ed from you. Yeah, right. On I, this one of these days, I'm glad this is how not, to fix the U.S. economy in three easy steps. I think I think my efforts are best spent on identifying cycle risk. It? But but are I would, you going to actually make me? I will write you will this. Write it, sure. How to fix the economy in three easy steps? So the first thing, uh, except, be, a, the, the except economy, that recessions are inevitable. Happen. Right. You can't. Second thing is be a little more anticipatory, not quite as reactive. Well, which they've been trying to do in theory, and they can't. And they just can't do it. That's so an I'm institutional not hold, failing. I'm not going to hold right. my breath on that because because basically they're all economists, right? Right. They all got these models, and right. models at their very root do not forecast recessions because they extrapolate things. Right. That's exactly so. What right. they're saying is, oh, look, it grew a couple of percent last quarter. It's going to go a couple of percent next quarter. Although and to never going to forecast to be a recession. fair to economists, they they have forecast. 12 of the past two recessions. So you, there you go. <laughs> I have to give them that. So uh, so the second, so we have the enhanced productivity through infrastructure to not this avoid stuff, recessions at all costs, but accept it as a natural part of the cycle. Right. This is really on the fiscal side. It's less of a central bank issue, right? Right. Uh, which uh, is why the, the truth-telling Janet Yellen said, 
hey, man, this is up to you guys. Yeah, yeah, the, you guys have left this on well, my see, doorstep, and, big, and I don't have the tools. This is the big This is the big switcheroo that happened, okay? You have the Great Recession, and then you have the central bank come in and say, oh, it's not structural. There's no, no nothing right. to see here. It's not structural. It's all cyclical. We'll take right. care of it. And five years later, they're like, mm, you know, maybe, maybe it's not cyclical. It maybe right. it is structural. And actually it is. It probably very likely is structural. In which case, it's not a central bank issue in the first place. It's really a policy issue. And this is where the discussion should be in Washington about what's going on with trend growth. Because, by the way, look at Europe and Japan, and this is the world we live in, and what are we going to do about it? So another another column I haven't written, is, but is in the back of my head, and we've talked about it before, is on that exact point. And if I wanted the most controversial headline I could get- Which you do. <laughs> to, by, the, by the way, people don't realize this. When you submit a column to Bloomberg or the Washington mm -hmm. Post and the New York Times, you give them a proposed headline, but an editor actually writes that. They you don't get, get to- right, sure. So every now and then, I'm like, hey, that's a really good headline. And, and then there are other times where I'm like, no, that's not at all what I mean, and you're going to cause trouble with that. Right. But um, So having a good editor is really, really sure. important. But what the headline that just crossed my cranium was uh, how the Federal Reserve supports the Tea Party. Hmm. And essentially, the Federal Reserve could have said, as you suggested, hey, recessions are inevitable. This is a fiscal, not a monetary issue. Mm -hmm. This is not a, 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 a this is a structural issue that we are not involved not a in. Cyclical, right? So I'm not going to we're not going to do anything because it's non-cyclical. And it's up to you. And if you guys don't do anything, stuff is going to get really bad. But the self-correcting mechanism yeah, is ultimately. you idiots get thrown out of office and someone else will come in and fix it. So I'm you don't you. have I'm to with fix you. it. I'm with you. Okay. So in a really – again, these are the unintended consequences. Earlier I said the Fed bailout prevented the ongoing definancialization of the economy. Mm -hmm. Now I'm saying the Fed bailout, the Fed – Monetary policy instead of fiscal policy is keeping people elected who under nor look when things you're get right. bad. You're right. Presidents, senators, congressmen, governors—they they all get thrown out. All right, next. This set. is what this is where I was going with. Maybe the Great Recession wasn't great enough. Uh, then, I, that's then, I, I wanted to bring you back to that. And then and then, but Barry also in so it's in March and April of 2009 that we're forecasting a recovery. Now, if you were asking me, do we need emergency? central bank intervention uh, towards the end of 09 or into 2010? No. I don't think I could have argued for it. Right. Okay. But Maybe what do we get? Maybe late 08. But what, yeah, no, late 08, fine. But, 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 but when you're on the other side, when you've gone through and you're coming right. out the other we side- still need it. Why? Why because are the we still- already, So that would have been a moment to back off. If we had to, we could have come back. You always reserve the right to come back. But at that moment, you've got the cycle going the other way. But here- if you're reactive, right. you're not forward-looking, which is what the system is, right. then you don't see that and you miss the opportunity. And I think that's a really great note to end on. Okay. So, Lachman, this has been really Thank fascinating. You. I'm going to start calling you Lach. <laughs> there you go. And um, what we'll end up doing, the broadcast part will go up on... Uh, I don't know the queue yet when it's released, but I'll send you some info. Please do. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to start doing when each of these go to broadcast. So I'm going to put up a, a, a page about this. I, by the way, I didn't get to mention you oh. wrote a book yeah, called right. Beating, Beating the Business Cycle. Beating the Business Cycle. So I'll put up a link to that okay. on, on Amazon. 
I'll put up. So we'll have. And a that explains the framework that we use. That you and use. How it's I'll, I'll link right. back to ECRI. You guys, and yep. and full disclosure, you've published at my blog, The Big Picture, every yes. now and then. You'll yes. do a sure. a longer form article, and we'll we'll post it there. Right. But you put out on your site are a couple of regular charts that get updated. Absolutely. All the time. There's the weekly leading index there. The future inflation gauges there. The business cycle dates are all there for 21 economies around the world. So including. Uh, all the bricks. And uh, that's all at businesscycle.com. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Barry. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.